Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about creating and running a kids' TV show with special guest Mike Albert, co-creator and producer of Disney XD's Kirby Buckets. Welcome, Mike. Well, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So just first up, what's your background and how did you end up here in LA? (laughs) Well, that's a big question. So my background is I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And so I got a degree in biology. And then I applied for and got into medical school and went there for a year. (laughs) And I hated it. It was was a nightmare. And immediately obvious I wasn't supposed to be there, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. But my, uh, my friend Gabe Snyder uh, from high school, he and I had always sort of like written, you know, feature length screenplays together just kind of as like a hobby, basically. And um, so he and I kept doing that long distance, um, you know, just over email, like sending each other like this before we had final draft. So we're like sending each other like Word documents, like with like <laughs> macros put in to, you know, <laughs> to, to move the characters over and do parentheticals and that kind of thing. So... After med school, after I left that, um, really kind of looking for what to do, I ended up getting a MFA in creative writing, a Master of Fine Arts in in Fiction Writing from Ohio State. And around that time, um, Gabe had moved out to L.A. with his then-girlfriend, and he called me up and said, look, I think we can make a go of this as like a real career if you're willing to, you know, put some work into it and, and whatever. I'm like, yeah, I had nothing else going on. I mean, with an MFA, you can teach college, <laughs> but um, that wasn't really my passion, clearly. I enjoyed writing much more than, you know, the, the teaching aspect of it. So, um, so yeah, so we kind of worked on it long distance and slow, like we enter contests and, you know, we do one year we would be semi-finalist and then we'd be finalist the next year. And so we was slowly working on the craft and reading books and reading screenplays and reading teleplays. And that's sort of, uh, I mean, eventually we did enough and um, that we landed some managers and the managers led to an agent and that led to a staff job on MTV's Death Valley which was a horror comedy kind of, you know, Reno 911 meets like vampires, zombies, and werewolves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was sort of my first gig in the business. And I got it before I even lived in LA. That's crazy. Um, Yeah, Uh I I did the interview for that show on the phone. And uh, because I, 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 it's crazy, but um, (laughs) my wife had just given birth to our, our first child and she was still in the hospital when our agent called and said, you have this interview, you need to come out. And I said, I can't really do that. My wife and newborn baby are in the hospital. Can I do it over the phone? (laughs) That's crazy. Before you dig into all that, let's step back for a second. And let me ask you, looking back now that you're a successful writer, do you feel feel getting that MFA and going to school was, you know, worth the time and the money? Well, I think it was definitely worth the time for me because I hadn't really thought about writing as a career, really. It, It was sort of something I enjoyed doing and kind of like a lark. You know, growing up in the Midwest, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, anything I'd thought about in any kind of tangible craft level. It was like, what's fun? What makes me laugh? What do I like doing? You know, like put that all on the page. But it, it was not something I thought about. So doing the MFA at least forced me to think about story on a craft level, the writer's toolbox, you know, like dialogue and, and, and how you can get across character through action and just... Uh, just thinking about story more analytically than just consuming it, which is, you know, as a child of television, that's really just sort of how I consumed all stories, just reading Tom Clancy novels and Michael Crichton novels and watching television and, and whatever. And like I was consuming story, but I wasn't thinking about it. So right. on that level, it was definitely helpful. In terms of the money, one of the cool things about Ohio State in particular was that their program is fully funded. So if you get into an MFA program and you teach creative writing or composition classes, your tuition is waived. So while I didn't make a ton of money doing that, I wasn't going deeper into crippling debt that I'd already accrued, you know, from undergrad (laughs) and from my one year of (laughs) ill-fated medical school. (laughs) 
You mentioned some of your kind of early inspirations there. What were some TV shows and films and even books and stuff that you loved and helped inspire you to get into writing? I watched everything. <laughs> um, you know, definitely when I was younger, there were like ABC's TGIF block was super important to me. It was like, you know, Full House and Family Matters and Perfect Strangers and and Step by Step. And like they would, you know, like shows would bop in and out of that. But I just could not get enough of that, even though, you know, I was young enough at that point where many of the jokes and storylines would kind of go over my head. It was it was definitely formative for me. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I want to do this for a career because to be honest with you, I probably thought that the actors were making up the words that they were saying as they were going <laughs> along. But, but um, it was definitely something that was a big part of, of growing up. I was also raised in a fairly like um, religious house. Um, and, you know, things like Roseanne and The Simpsons were off limits to me, unfortunately. So I would occasionally like sneak episodes like they were like devious. Like I'd go over to like friend's house for a sleepover and we would watch like Simpsons episodes <laughs> because, you know, you're not supposed to do that. So um, it felt a little, uh, a little naughty. Uh, <laughs> like a watching TV should feel. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> So you mentioned some of the, the competitions you entered. Can you list those and were they any help? Uh, sure. I mean, like everybody, we did like the Nichols Fellowship every year. And I mean, we never placed highly enough in that to get any kind of real traction. But Scriptic Palooza, at one point we, we entered that uh, at least once or twice. Blue Cat, I think that's one of them that I, <laughs> I know that we entered. Uh, the one that actually helped us the most, and a little plug here for trackingb.com, they still do the feature contest which we entered, but they also do a pilot contest as well. But the feature contest that they do, um, the prize was... If you win, you get honorable mention. Basically, the prize was just your name and log line and, you know, contact info is put up on their website for a couple of weeks. Or at least this is what the prize was, you know, for finalists when, when we, you know, were finalists in that uh, contest. So based off of that being up on their website, I mean, we got 20, 25 requests for that script that we had written from managers and, and producers and, you know, I don't know, other interested parties. <laughs> I mean, very little happened with that. But one of the people that requested the script turned out to be a creative exec at a small production company called Sobini Films. And they had a first look deal with Lionsgate. And so he brought us in. I flew out and, you know, we met with him and, and he really liked the script and they, they ended up optioning it. So that was sort of like the first money we'd ever been paid to write anything, you know, so that was exciting. And then directly from that, this exec sent the script to his friend at Comedy Central who thought it was funny and asked us if we had TV ideas. And that was sort of our entree into the TV world. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there was value in it. I, I don't know that everyone has that a similar story, but for us, yes, absolutely. Uh, and in terms of your representation, did they find you through that competition as well? Or was it a matter of you going out and finding them? So we ended up signing with managers who at the time were abstract entertainment. That was their, their shingle, sort of up and coming guys that were sort of new to the business and looking for clients that were kind of new to the business. And we met them not directly through the competition, but certainly like as, you know, fruit of that same tree. So we d ended up doing a, um, a web series called Ultradome, which was with Milo Ventimiglia's production company. And based on that, we were introduced to them through through those guys, sort of friend of a friend kind of situation. So that's how we got our first uh, managers. So you briefly mentioned how you got your gig on Death Valley. Can you dig into that process of especially interviewing outside LA and how that happened? Yeah, so our agent at the time was very concerned that I didn't live in LA. And, you know, rightfully so. It's hard to get work in a town where, you know, you have a meeting and then, nope, it's got rescheduled. Nope, it's being bumped to next week. You can't fly out and, you know, make sure all these meetings are going to happen in one sort of like one week time period because they just get moved so much. 
So unfortunately, my wife was not interested in moving to LA without proof that I could make a real genuine career of this. <laughs> and, you know, rightfully so. So, you know, my writing partner lived out here, but I was living in Columbus. And so... I would come out for meetings, I would come out for pitches, but it was it was not something that I could really convince her, my wife, to move out until, you know, I had money coming in. Mm -hmm. And so this phone call from our agent saying, like, you've got this interview on Death Valley was kind of amazing and kind of like a perfect situation because, because I had a writing partner who was already living out here. And because the showrunners and, and producers on Death Valley were cool enough to like let me do it over the phone with, with Gabe there in person, that let us get that job without me being out here full time. And for you know my wife, it kind of served as proof of concept. Oh, here's a, I mean, it was a relatively short term gig, couple months, but it let me crash on my, my writing partner's couch, didn't have to like rent a place, but it also showed to my wife I could have checks coming in. <laughs> and then, so we then moved out the next summer. Tell us a little bit about working on your first show. How was that experience in the room and that kind of thing? I mean, you know, it's exhilarating <laughs> because it's the thing that you've been saying that you want to do for years at that point and working towards. And so it, it was, it was amazing. I mean, like I said, it was a, it was a short term gig. It was, it was really like six, eight weeks, something like that. And uh, it was like a short order show and MTV was, you know, dipping a toe into that world. And so it wasn't a high pressure kind of job, which is great. Like the room was very cooperative and, you know, there were certainly people in there that, had, you know, worked on other things, but there was, it was not a sense of like, this is a competition to see who can be the funniest. Like you hear some writer's rooms can be, it was, it was more collaborative. It was more sort of fun when we spent most of our time, it felt like watching YouTube videos <laughs> and just joking around, but the process of, of watching professional TV writers like break story and, and how they thought about story and weaving A and B storylines together and where the act breaks should go and thinking about all the technical aspects of, of TV writing that before you're in your first room, like you might never really consider production realities, for instance, like all of that stuff comes into play in a way that, you know, it was just really formative and and, and amazing and, and, a, and a great first writer's room experience. Was there something that surprised you in the room that you've since taken in your other rooms? I mean, honestly, what surprised me was like how little work we actually did in the room. <laughs> Because like it was really fun, but we ended up writing most of the stuff like after the room had wrapped, mm. everybody went off and wrote their script and then sent them back in. But that's not how most rooms work, right. <laughs> you know, and I don't know that I would take that or whatever, but um, fair. So Death Valley wraps. How do you go about finding that second job and working on Super Ninja? Yeah. So that was uh, a scary period of my life because what happened after Death Valley wrapped at the end of 2010, 2011 starts, you know, my wife gets a job in LA, we move out and Death Valley does not get renewed for a second season. And it's like, okay, so we'll just get another phone call from our agent about the next showrunner interview, right? Like that's <laughs> going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't happen. And it kind of became a, oh, no sort of moment. You know, I thought this was my career now and maybe it's not as going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be. And so, um, you know, like I literally went into like the end of 2011, I went to a Best Buy to get like an application to work there because I was like, all right, well, I was way wrong and my wife's going to kill me and we're definitely going to move back soon. But until then, I'm going to sell laptops. But what ended up happening was, you know, we took a lot of general meetings and, and things sort of like slowly started percolating at the end of 2011. Particularly, we had one meeting with Disney and Disney XD and like that sort of became like a, a working relationship. And, you know, we're kind of percolating on some ideas with them. And then the beginning of 2012, we, we did get that call about, hey, there's a, a, 
a showrunner interview. They, the guys really responded to your script and, you know, like they want to they want to meet you. And it's on this Nickelodeon show, you know, action comedy called Super Ninjas. So, yes, it was a kid's show, but the single cam action comedy felt like it was in the same in the same vein. So we could talk, you know, intelligently about that in the interview. And we hadn't really ever worked on kids TV at that point, you know, beyond like these sort of this working relationship that we'd started to, to develop with, uh, with Disney. And, but yeah, we just really, you know, vibed with them in the interview. And I think we ended up talking mostly about game of Thrones or something like that in, <laughs> in that, in that interview. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, we, we got that job and we're like, all right, I guess we're working in kids TV for a bit. So, you know, it was one of these sort of like roll with the punches, and we were really lucky because that show was a really fun and formative kind of show to work on. But it was it was not the show that I would have drawn out of a hat to say this is the show that's like going to be the next step in our writing careers. But it, it was a great experience. What were the kind of adjustments you had to make now writing for kids TV instead of what you were doing before? Fewer sex jokes. <laughs> Not no sex jokes, just fewer sex jokes. It was surprisingly little, to be honest with you. Kids TV, I think, can get a bad rap because, you know, as adults, we're all sort of like feel a little bit above it or something or it's, it's not cool anymore or maybe we're just unaware of like what's happening in that space but there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening in in kids tv and super ninjas particularly had you know george takei was on that show you know and it was fun to see just how much of what we had learned on death valley whether it be like writing a fight scene you know which was not really something that we'd done much of just translated seamlessly to this other show and the only real difference was just being aware of how much each kid is going to be on every page because there are, are rules with you know uh, kid actors and the number of hours they can work and you know certain storylines aren't going to fly but surprisingly a uh, little had to change to make it feel like we were sort of transitioning into that kids tv world so how do you then go from staffing to pitching and developing and selling a show to disney so as i said we had a couple general meetings with disney before we ended up on super ninjas and these were meetings that were just sort of like you know getting to know you like what do you like what do we like do we feel like there's something we can work on together and what disney told us was look we've got an idea for a show. We want to do something that's like a hybrid of live action and animation. And I don't know, maybe the kids like an animator or something. What do you got? And so we just spent time, you know, pitching back and forth with them, just emailing, like doing calls, sending them ideas back and forth. And then ultimately, once we'd sort of developed out the full pitch, we went in and pitched to to their boss. And, you know, he liked our take. And you know, a couple of days later, we get the phone call like, hey, you know, we want to buy this from you, which is amazing, right? And so while we were staffed on Super Ninjas, we were also sort of slowly like working on that on that script at that point. So it was kind of like a co-evolving kind of thing. We were learning about writing TV by writing on kids TV. You know, we're learning about like ways that we could improve our Kirby scripts while we were doing this other thing. And so they were sort of growing up together kind of thing. So how does a pilot get to production? You know, the short answer is like, they don't always get to production. I mean, most of them don't, I would say, you know, Gabe and I had sold a few pilots to like, you know, Viacom companies like Spike TV back when they were a, a channel. and <laughs> That's like um, Paramount. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And like MTV. And, you know, they were pilots that we worked really hard on and we were really proud of. And then nothing happened with them because, you know, Spike stopped doing scripted television or MTV isn't interested in animation anymore, that kind of thing. So, but on, on the Kirby pilot, we just got really lucky. I mean, we worked very hard, but there's so many things that are out of the writer's control, you know, in this process that you also have to be very lucky. In that pilot in particular, you know, we developed it with them. We were really happy with the product that we had made. 
you know, they were happy and then they, they greenlit the pilot. You know, we brought on a director who, you know, EP director, the project is sort of moving along. You know, we get a line producer, we cast, we do all that kind of thing. And then ultimately the final product that we came up with didn't test that well and was sort of further away from what Disney thought they were getting. And honestly, further away from what Gabe and I thought we were making. But like the most amazing thing happened where Disney says, but we still like the idea and we like working with you. So why don't you give the pilot another swing? Write another version of this pilot. And that never happens, right? (laughs) In, In life, in Hollywood, whatever, where you get another bite at the apple to, you know, fix the mistakes that you knew that you made before to you know, rejigger this thing that, you know, on some level works, but obviously not on enough levels. We added a couple of characters. We deleted a character. We completely changed the pilot. So it was a page one rewrite and they paid us to do it, which hallelujah, right? (laughs) So, um, so that pilot then goes through all the notes process that gets greenlit, that gets made. Another showrunner gets brought on because Gabe and I were just staff writers up until that point. A showrunner gets brought on, a showrunner that we, by the way, knew and had worked with on Death Valley and on uh, Super Ninjas. So we have a good working relationship and the whole thing kind of like clicks. It feels like much smoother during the process. And then the pilot that came out of that tests well and Disney likes and they greenlit it to series. There's a lot of steps along the way and many of them are outside of your control. So a lot of luck is how it happens. So you mentioned they brought in a more experienced showrunner to kind of do the nuts and bolts of the show. What were your and Gabe's responsibilities in comparison to that? And how did you approach kind of producing your show? It was... It was as smooth as you could imagine that situation being. Anytime someone is brought on over top of you for a project that's your baby that you've been with for so long, that you've been with on a whole other pilot shoot, you know, in fact, the potential for conflict is is strong. And ultimately, that showrunner is going to get the final say. So thankfully, uh, our showrunner, Christopher Brown, was just really great in involving us in all of the important decisions that needed to be made for that show. From everything like picking the theme song of the show to just like broad creative direction of the seasons. He was just so inclusive and collaborative with us and and honestly he seemed to to really trust our creative sensibility about the show. Eventually, about halfway through season one, we were able to just be running the writer's room while Chris was on set or dealing with a cut or interviewing directors or doing tone meetings or any of the other million things that a showrunner has to do. So we had the opportunity to do all the fun stuff of producing, you know, being in casting, running the room, you know, working in editing, occasionally being on set, all of the stuff that you want to learn how to do, kind of like a producer school, while he handled all the nuts and bolts and kept the show running and the trains on time, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so it, it really was as smooth of a process as possible. And it is definitely not always that way. I know people who have been fired off of the show that they created. You know, I've known people that sort of bristle because the showrunner that got brought on has just a very different vision for the show. And so it's either smile and nod or find a new job. And and that was not at all our experience. And so in, in that way, you know, again, we were just really lucky. And did that delineation of responsibilities evolve naturally throughout the process? Or was there a conversation from the get-go about, oh, you'll be handling producing and you'll be handling more creative decisions? How did that initially work out? I mean, we certainly kept the lines of communication open, but I don't know that it was ever a strict conversation about, here's what I'm going to do, here's what you're going to do. Like I said, about halfway through season one, Chris very clearly like believed in what we saw as like the creative direction for the show. And, you know, he was a big part of helping to form that as well. So he was just less and less in the writer's room as more and more other stuff piled up. 
And so I think that just sort of happened naturally. And then he was very clear, though, with us that he said, you know, I want you guys to be in the editing bay, like looking at these edits and, and understanding how that goes. Because, you know, like most, you know, sort of novice writers or, or you know, even staff writers don't realize the importance of editing in a TV show and how very much that is just another way to tell that story and how great episodes can be ruined and how mm. subpar episodes can be elevated through that process. And being able to sit there with the editors and do that was, I mean, just, again, it's like producer school. Like it's an invaluable experience that Chris was very clear. Like, I want you guys to have this shot as well. So did you get a say in sort of hiring your staff from writers to assistants? And how did you go about that? What kind of things were you looking for? Yeah, there again was another place where Chris did not have to be as open and collaborative as he was, but he was just great about that. Um, what we did was Gabe and uh, Chris and I would read everything and we would make our lists of, you know, yes, no, maybe piles and you know, sort of just get on the phone and compare lists. Like, who did you love? Who did you not love? And if someone loved a particular writer and another person didn't or had them in a maybe, you know, pile, just have a conversation about here's what I think they're really good at. I think they're good at structure. I think they're good at jokes or, you know, their act breaks are so solid. They clearly have a command of characterizing through action, that kind of thing. And then if everyone was comfortable with it, like then that person would either get moved up into the yes or moved out into, you know, the maybe. And so it kind of became a nice way for us to spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, what we thought was important in, in a staff writer. And then we were also able to see the way Chris was thinking about forming that room I mean, balancing, you know, strengths and weaknesses, balancing, you know, experience, balancing like what we would perceive their like their voice and their style was all of that kind of thing and so so yeah we were very involved in that we didn't have the final say but I don't think there was anybody that made it onto the show that we were all not fully behind and what were those things that you're looking for in a staff writer are there certain core things you look for in everyone are you looking for niches and specialties you know strengths you mentioned structure character that kind of thing yeah, I mean, I, I think it can vary depending, again, on how the room is shaping up or, or how it's shaping up in your head. I mean, it's certainly possible, you know, on a comedy to hire someone just because they can make you laugh, even though the structure is relatively, like, weak. If someone has the ability to, to surprise a comedy writer and make them laugh while they're reading something, I mean, that's no small feat. And so bringing that person in for an interview, I think, is definitely uh, warranted. But if you're not looking for a joke person, then, you know, that person might not ever see the light of day. So for me personally, like in a staff writer, one of the things that, that I'm looking for is someone whose script doesn't blend in with all of the other scripts because... As a writer trying to get staffed, you see this as, okay, I've got one piece of material and I'm going to submit it, you know, I'm going to send it to my agent or my agent's going to send it out. And you have all of these things that you kind of like put into the script. Like I want to make it seem like it's producible or, or you care about like it being like, this feels like something that could be on TV or something. I mean, those, those are potentially things that you could care about. And you know, from the other side of the desk, when you're reading that script, it's not just one, it's like 150. And so the biggest sin to me is the script that blends in with all the other scripts. You know, a script that you can say like, oh yeah, I can see this being on CBS next season. Or like, yeah, this does feel like familiar in the way that I can imagine someone making. But if it doesn't get me like excited, if, it, if I'm not like, wow, this is cool, then there's no real reason to bring that in because there's tons of competent scripts, mm -hmm. tons of them. As a person trying to get your first staffing job or even your second staffing job, to me, your goal should be to stand out and showcase what makes you like the best possible writer for this show. And maybe you're not the best possible writer for every show, but that's okay because the one show that you are right for, you're going to get that interview if who you are is shown on that page. So moving on to the day-to-day -day of the room, how do you approach running that writer's room 
And how do you balance being a writer from also being in a managerial position and also producer of the show? Yeah, I mean, that's another part of that whole producer school experience is learning that process. And it was certainly not something that uh, Gabe and I like knew right away how to do that. I mean, I think we, we made plenty of mistakes in that process on you know, Kirby season one, and then maybe it gets a little bit easier in season two. And by season three, you kind of have it. <laughs> um, but the nice thing about being in a writing team is that, you know, he can be in the writer's room while I'm off rewriting someone's outline, or he can be in casting while I'm trying to break a new B story because the table read showed that the B story doesn't work. And so so it's nice to be able to kind of have a clone of yourself. And, and we've worked so long together and written so many things together at this point that uh, I kind of know the sorts of things he's going to respond to. And he knows the sorts of things that I'm going to respond to. And the divided paychecks aside, that that alone, like the, the ability to like lift some of the weight off of your shoulders for your first room running experience was totally worth it. For us, going from staff writer level, you know, a few staff writer positions to, okay, run this room, you know, I mean, it was definitely like a steep learning curve. Everyone in that room is looking to you for guidance on what this show is, because if you don't know, nobody knows. They're pitching to you, like you're sitting there and they're making a joke trying to make you laugh. That's a very weird experience because normally you're doing, you know, you imagine it the other way where you're trying to make someone else laugh and, and, and you know, find their vision. But when you are in that sort of room running kind of mentality, I mean, the thing is to just, you know, consider what the show does best and try to pull out of all of these disparate ideas that are constantly being, it's, it's synthesis, really. All of these ideas are being thrown at you. And you want to pluck the few things that feel like they work and blend them in a unique way to become the voice of the show. It is a bit like conducting uh, a piece of music, I would imagine. Although, you know, to be honest, I've never done that. So <laughs> maybe it's nothing like that. It just feels like that. And, uh, you know, for my next gig, I'm going to invest in one of those batons. I can just sort of like wave around. You. Uh, <laughs> right. She's a little bit more soprano here. And, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's synthesis, it's listening, but it's also not being afraid to shoot people down, but doing it in a way that's not going to shut them down. Finding the way to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but honestly, I think it's going to work better if we try it like this and like leading away from things that you don't think are working without making the person who suggested the wrong thing feel like they're an idiot because that there's no surer way to shut down a room than yelling at a few people and then being like, okay, more people pitch me because nobody wants to get yelled at. <laughs> so can you take us through your story process in the room? How did you guys break episodes and beats and outlines to script that kind of thing? Also board or cards? Uh, board. We're a, we're a board show. The general process at Disney anyway, I think it's probably similar on a lot of shows, but the, the process there is to send what's called soft pitches, basically like a sentence or two or as many as like five, I guess, to Disney where it says something like, you know, on our, on our show, just for example, it might say something like, um, Kirby believes that he now has the ability to draw the future because everything he draws seems to come to life which leads him to run afoul of this bully he thinks he can then control through his drawings, you know, or whatever. So that gets written as like a few sentences sent in an email to Disney. Disney responds, we like this one, we like this one, we don't like this one. This one feels too familiar to an episode of Bizarre Vark we did last week, which is a real Disney show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, it's not a bad Disney show, actually. It's pretty good. And uh, so after you have those soft pitches, then you kind of break those out into what we call the one pager, but we're generally anywhere from two to three and a half pages of single space text mm -hmm. um, where you kind of broke it out into the major beats of the story. Occasionally there would be like a joke in there, but for the most part, we tried to follow the dictum that like a good uh, comedy story 
is the same as a good drama story. Like it should work as a story without the jokes because if it doesn't, your, your, your viewers aren't gonna get invested into it. So we tried to strip away the jokes and just write out the story in prose format. Again, that would get sent to them. They would send it back with their notes or concerns or, oh, we're surprised the B story went this way. Like, you know, could you have done this? Or there's some concern over here about Kirby pulling the fire alarm. So, you know, which is another thing you kind of have to worry about on kids TV, imitatable behavior, you know, so that kind of thing can come up at that point. And so after your uh, quote unquote one pager, then we would reboard that story and break it off into its individual like scenic components and make sure that the writer really understood every scene and what the expectations had to be like what each character's drive in every scene where we need to end up what the act breaks need to feel like and then we would send that writer off for three four days a week maybe to write their outline they'd bring that back gabe and i would rewrite we'd send that to chris chris would do whatever he wanted to do rewrites or punches or ask questions that would get sent to disney disney would come back with their notes We'd have to re-break anything that felt like it wasn't working from any one of these sets of notes. And then um, and then the writer would go off with that for their week and 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 write that. So, yeah, that was kind of the, the, the process. I think it's fairly similar on a lot of shows, but it's, at least for Disney and Disney XD, it's the kind of thing where they want, you know, they have a, a really solid idea of what their brand is. And so, like, they want, like, eyeballs on the story at every different point. But I think that's it's fairly common with, with lots of networks. Yeah. And how do you decide how to assign scripts for particular episodes? Is it a, a seniority aspect or is there some other element that comes into your mind? Yeah. I mean, on our show, we kind of did just, you know, like, call it like the batting order. You know, we just had a list of, okay, Mike and Gabe write episode one. And then Chris, if he's got time, writes episode two. And then, you know, the number three person would write number three. And then you kind of assign them all out. You know, what we tried to do, because we are writers first more than we're like managers, like we like to write. And so, you know, every time we would finish a script, we would see if there was another like available script and sort of like wedge ourselves back into the lineup when it felt like we could, you know, had the bandwidth to do that. We didn't do the thing where you don't get a script unless you pitch the great idea. Like you hear like things like, you know, the Seinfeld writer's room was you had to, to pitch the thing to, to, to Jerry and, and Larry David and, and, you know, I had to work with them and then you got to write that script and then they were going to rewrite it anyways. But, you know, we just, we tried to, to distribute them relatively evenly, but yeah, sort of roughly based on a seniority kind of order. How did you approach sort of serialization and season arcs in your show? How do you kind of balance that episodic nature versus ongoing threads? Well, it's funny because season one and two were very much episodic in nature. There were small arcs, you know, like a budding relationship that Kirby's sister had with this weird guy at school or like recurring jokes. But there wasn't much serialization in terms of big story arcs. And part of that is because, you know, Disney reruns their shows a lot more than many other networks. And so if you are super serialized, it's hard for kids to just jump in and watch an episode and not be lost. And so that is kind of changing, actually, as binging and, you know, Disney starts thinking about their new app. I'm sure that's, you know, part of it. But they definitely do have more serialization now on some of their shows than they than they used to. But that was sort of our dictum in the first two seasons. And then the third season, Disney came to us and said, look, we really like the show and we want to do more crazy, big life and death stakes and mythology. And we're like, really? In our... <laughs> On our show about a kid animator. And, okay. So, you know, we were kind of pitching a few versions of what we thought that might look like. And they kept being like, no, we want it to be bigger and more serialized and more life and death. And we're like, all right, we're going to pitch you the craziest thing. And then you're going to realize how silly all this sounds. We're going to turn Kirby Buckets into a traveler between alternate dimensions. We're going to make this show into a very serialized life and death stakes where in episode one, his parents get lost in an alternate dimension 
And then every episode, it's like Sliders, that old Fox show, with <laughs> yeah, uh, Jerry yeah. O'Connell. Of course, classic. Right. And and that's how we pitch it. Sliders for kids. <laughs> and and you're like, so, you know, right. Silly, huh? And like, we love that. Let's do that. <laughs> like, cool. Okay. So that show, that season was only 13 episodes and it became very serialized. Where Kirby was looking for them in the first third of the season. And then after he'd found them at like episode five or six, the middle third of the season kind of became what were the consequences for him traveling through all of these alternate universes. And then the end of the season was he's attracted attention of like an evil version of his principal from the world that we know. But it's like this dark version of his principal that has now come to this place to take over. And I mean, it got so crazy, but honestly, it was... So much fun to write. And the serialization element definitely helps when thinking about stories because you're like, okay, this is a middle third episode. What could another consequence of Kirby portal hopping be? You know, or this is an early episode. So what world could he go into to try to find his parents? And what could the consequence of him not having parents at home be? You know, so it, it actually gave you a rough scaffold that upon which you could build story, which we found really like comforting and fun. Yeah. So, nice. and the principal turned out to be a crow mag, like on Sliders. <laughs> uh, so, do you feel that changing the format of the show to this alternate reality concept in the third season was that born out of an element not just of serialization, but also a need for the story to stay fresh? Was that uh, something that entered your mind at all? I mean, yeah, I certainly did. And I think, you know, part of the push for that, like I said, came from Disney initially. But one of the things that we found as we dug into it a little bit was like, how many fun kinds of stories can you do when you aren't sort of tied to like some kind of basic reality of like a, you know, 14, 15 year old kid who's good at drawing. And not that we didn't have other stories to tell. I think we could have done another season or two in that original mold, but it, it did free us up. It did kind of get to a point where we were just having so much fun in the writer's room pitching like, okay, what if in this reality, you know, Kirby is like, it's like 1970s, like cop kind of feel like uh, it's like Serpico or, or um, and Kirby somehow in this reality has risen to the level of police detective because, you know, infinite realities, infinite yeah. possibilities. So in one of them, he's got to be a 1970s police detective, right? So we uh, we just had a ton of fun doing that, and it certainly kept the room fresh. It kept the stories feeling fresh. But I would also imagine that you know, if like if you were a kid watching it and you just jumped into the middle of that, you would probably wonder what happened to the Kirby buckets who who liked yeah. to draw. I mean, we changed it so much that we actually ended up changing the title of the show a little bit to Kirby Buckets Warped. Because we were like, all right, we got to just have to delineate this somehow that this is its own separate trip. You know, we were very mindful to every episode have one character say something like, oh, man, this is totally warped. <laughs> because that was making us laugh, too. <laughs> so how do you kind of stay faithful to the original show and the concept while introducing these new elements and also have it be recognizable to the fans? I mean, I think... What we did was we knew the characters really well. So we just tried to stay faithful to the characters. So Kirby and Dawn, his sister Dawn's relationship was always very kind of contentious and, you know, like a little bit like Ferris Bueller and his sister, just like at some level they love each other, but on another level, like they want nothing more than the other person to go down hard. So just staying true to the relationships and the characters, you know, after that, I mean, it just became like, all right, the world is going to be crazy anyway. And it was always a little bit weird, a little bit left of center, the uh, the town that we'd put them in. I mean, at one point, in fact, in the pilot, like you, we introduced part of Kirby's town called Clown Town, which was just a place where an old circus convoy had broken down 
years ago and the clowns are now like living there like a, a like a homeless gang and like assaulting people that happen to be unlucky enough to go through there so it's not like the show wasn't weird already it just it just got weirder and you know just being just having fun with that and you know archer's doing a similar kind of thing as well like to keep those stories fresh so it's not just like oh a spy agency like this time they're like a detective agency. Now they're running drugs. Now they're in a 1940s movie somehow, you know. You know, being true to the characters and then just having fun feels like the only thing that you can really do. <laughs> so moving on to the production side of things, can you walk us through what that looks like on a Disney and a kids show? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly production concerns with a kids show that you don't have with uh, adult shows, but... Uh, well, that sounds sexier than it is. Adult <laughs> shows, right? Broadcast shows, you know, standard cable fare. <laughs> Cue the slap bass. Yeah. Um, like there's things like the younger a kid is, the fewer hours that they are allowed to be on set for. So the second they step on set, they have to be, you know, whether that's in makeup or, you know, their little on set school, like all of those concerns have to be managed as well and so being aware of all that and having really good assistant directors and smart directors that can work around like when do we do shots to maximize the kids being there but where are the shots that you don't need them and so we can move those to the end of the day when we're not going to have them Mm -hmm. so there's a ton of like tricks like that that come into play you know using stand-ins to do like um if you're you're close on like mom or dad you know you can use a stand-in with like a kirby wig to like shoot over their shoulder because Kirby's day ended, you know, an hour and a half ago and he had to go home for legal reasons. And so now you're going to just make sure you already had his coverage and now you're doing the coverage of the parent after he left. Mm. So it's it can be tricky, but, you know, being on set and being the, you know, sort of like the the producer's voice on set and, and working closely with the director and, and working with the actors and the acting coach and, you know, just, I mean, it's a it's an amazing feeling that I love. I know not all writers love to be on set, but it's just such a fun experience for me being able to see this blueprint that that you've written or that you've had part in writing then be converted into a product for consumption just is really like, I don't know. I, I I loved that that whole experience. Am I correct in saying that all the various departments on Curry Buckets were in the same location physically and the yeah. set and the writer's room and all those departments? Yeah. So we had a big sort of office slash warehouse place in, in Burbank that our line producer had converted into a soundstage. And the great part about that was, you know, in the more office part of it, the front part of it, we had the writer's room, we had like, you know, like the office staff, like the accountants, that kind of thing for the show. And then, you know, right off of there, we had editing bays and like the makeup room and uh, wardrobe and our table read room. And then off of that was the stage. And we built full-size versions of like several hallways of the school, a cafeteria, a classroom, Kirby's house, his bedroom, his backyard, uh, like a sort of a mini mart that they could all hang out at. And so we were able to, you know, if the showrunner heard, oh, there's some problem on set and he was in the writer's room, he could just run down there. Or if he had to leave editing, but notes needed to, like that that cut needed to go out, Gabe or I could go down and, and sit in editing, or casting was happening there, we could just bop down to that for an hour and then go back to the room without having to drive all over town, which is very often the case. So that was super convenient and, you know, like a, yeah, a really awesome experience as well. So how do you find time to work on kind of new samples and projects while you're running a show? You know, we know firsthand how hard it is to find that time even as a staff writer or assistant, let alone a showrunner. It's tricky. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't do much of that on Kirby. I mean, you know, at that point we were so busy, like learning the ropes. I mean, you know, season one, we had no thought of producing anything else. It was just like, let's get through this season and learn as much as we can and have a good time, but not worry about that stuff as much. And then on hiatus, we'll 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 pick it up worrying about it then. 
And then, you know, then we got uh, an order for season two and season two was in some ways harder than season one because season one was 19 episodes plus the pilot. Season two is 26 episodes. And so like that on some level is going to break you no matter who you are. <laughs> so um, you're never caught up. It always feels like the boulder's about to roll over top of you. So, you know, you just have to keep running. And so, you know, we would have like little hiatus weeks where we would daydream more than anything about like, oh, it'd be cool to like do a pilot like this. Or I had this idea. Let's make sure we don't forget that, put it in like our bank of ideas. But we had no bandwidth for writing anything new at that point. But then in season three, when the order was only 13 and things felt a bit easier and we weren't positive we were going to get a season four, you know, we tried to spend a bit of time on weekends or when it felt like, you know, things were running very smoothly or especially towards the end when we were all done writing, but the episodes hadn't been filmed, tried to be smart about like, writing a new sample, coming up with a new pitch. And, you know, the truth is like, at that point, it was more like, well, if it doesn't come back, we don't want to be flat footed and have nothing to try to go out with. Maybe other people were better about budgeting their time or other other head writers or showrunners or whatever are better at that. But even in between seasons one and two and two and three, it, it felt very much like I just need to collapse and watch all the TV I've missed out on and play like all the video games I've missed out on <laughs> and just really like enjoy my family and remember what life feels like when you're not like running as fast as you can. <laughs> so I know you also wrote a freelance episode of The Flash. I did, yeah. Can you walk us through sort of that process of getting that freelance? Did you get to sit in the room and what was it like sort of coming in as an outsider and getting a freelance episode on an already established TV show? That was a super unique experience because, you know, Gabe and I had never written on a one hour before our way into that was you know we sort of met one of the producers through my wife who's a, a teacher and we ended up sending him some some material and he liked it and i you know i just figured nothing was going to happen because we're not really one hour writers i mean don't get me wrong i i watched the flash and was a fan of like a lot of those sort of dc shows that that cw is doing it wasn't something that felt like it was a genuine kind of job interview. <laughs> so um, it was just a, hey, like we wrote this action comedy script. And, and then fortunately for us, season four of The Flash did have a bit more of a, a lighter tone and a bit more comedy than some of the other seasons had had. And so, yeah, we got an email saying... You know, are you guys interested in freelancing an episode? This was on a Friday. Are you guys interested in that? It starts Monday. I'm <laughs> um, like, yeah, okay, cool. So, <laughs> so yeah, so we sat in the writer's room for about a week and just listened, you know, the first couple of days, spent most of our time silently, like, listening to how they were talking about story and how they were talking about weaving these storylines together by that point like the room has developed a shorthand like they all know what they're doing they're all very smart and really good with story they're all pros and so you don't want to go in being like well here's what i think you know <laughs> so so when we went in yeah we were quiet at first and then you know they were very inviting and like asked us questions and we're we're definitely like inclusive of us and we sort of felt more and more confident in huh, that's interesting. I would have thought the end of act three would be this instead. And then they would talk through why they thought it was the other thing. But it was a very inclusive atmosphere that we were, you know, super lucky to to go in there because I can imagine it. I mean, it felt daunting as it was, but I could imagine that being a solid wall of ice that you can never crack through. <laughs> and it was not like that at all. So it was a good experience. And then so after that week, then we we took our episode and we started, you know, writing it on our own as they broke the rest of the season. And, you know, of course, they swear you to secrecy because you're seeing and hearing things about what's going to happen like later on in the season. And, you know, like the flash fandom is really like intense about trying to get a hold of that so uh, <laughs> my brother is uh, super into the flash and so i just i lorded it over him like i know what's gonna happen i know what's gonna happen in this crossover episode i know what's gonna happen at the end you know to his credit he didn't want to know he just didn't want me to spoil it for him yeah. so Did they assign a secret service detail to you <laughs> 
<laughs> they did bug our phone. Uh, the sniper watching you at all times. That's, that's right. We had key log recorders on all of our computers. So. Nice. so how did you approach writing that episode differently from your usual writing? In some ways, and again, I, I sort of said this about Super Ninjas, you know, to Death Valley, like some of our experience writing action kind of based stories um, in the past definitely came into play as well as our belief that comedy stories should work without the jokes because then these are basically just those stories they're just a little bit more heartfelt sometimes they're they don't have as many jokes in them but the stories still need to work and that's kind of a universal idea now it definitely took a little bit of mental rejiggering to think not in a three-act structure, right? To think in a, you know, a six-act structure and think about what they're talking about. Okay, so on a typical Flash episode, the fourth act is, you know, like this kind of thing happens. Having that, just just about like listening to what they have to say and, and you know, like when you get notes on like rewriting it, like taking those to heart, knowing that they're coming from people who have been doing this for a heck of a lot longer than you've been doing it. So just, you know, listening and, and doing that. But it it was surprisingly not as much change as, as you might think it would be. Just the story felt like more expansive. You could do a little bit more with the story. You could service more characters and more storylines. That being said, however, you know, like after we turned our script in and, and sort of we were done with it, like, you know, our episode got rewritten plenty because all episodes of TV are rewritten plenty, but for the realities of production. So I don't know, maybe we didn't do a good job, but, um, <laughs> um, but I, I, it was such a good experience and no one was like, hey, man, you're really screwing this up. So I, I hope that wasn't the case. But yeah, I, I, I was kind of surprised how... And, and part of it could be because you're so used to taking in stories, like hour-long stories. Like if you watch enough of The Flash or if you watch like those kinds of... You know what those stories do and what they're good at and what they're supposed to sound like and, and feel like. That actually was very helpful. And reading their scripts and that kind of thing was very helpful in like reattuning your brain a little bit mm -hmm. to you know their particular cadence and, and rhythms. Do you have any tips for people who would like to transition from one genre or format to another and things you've learned in that process? I think it's really important as writers to first be readers of things. You know, if you really love a particular genre of television, be it, you know, the superheroes or procedurals or something, reading a bunch of scripts from episodes that have been written and produced, I mean, there's no better, like, lesson than that. And just read them analytically, not just as a fan. Like, understand, you know, how long are the scenes generally? Like, where do they come in on a scene? Like, where do they go out? Like, what do the act breaks look like? And just being just, like, super... Because it's, it's not magic. Like, we love story because story feels like magic when you're kind of taking it in. And it's, like, so entertaining and fun. And you care about the characters and, like, that. It does kind of feel like a magical process. But, and, and part of it is art. But part of it is craft. And, and knowing how to shape something. Like, you have to have control of your craft before you can make it really sing. Um, I've certainly read writers who are stepping from you know, one genre to the next where it's like, oh, okay, like you have a cool voice, but all of like the craft elements aren't fully in place. And so like, it's just a matter of like working on your craft and being willing to put that time in. I mean, I don't know if the 10,000 hours thing has been debunked yet or not, but it's certainly something that, that I believe that you've got to learn your instrument before you can get sexy on it. So yeah, so you have to learn your craft first before a piece of writing can really sing. And and so doing that and like sitting, listening and, and learning feels like the important first step. But then also understanding that, you know, on some level, like story is story, you know, and some story is full of jokes and other story is trying to make you feel other emotions. <laughs> So as someone who's worked on a number of shows now and having your own show under your belt, how do you kind of deal with the the instability of working in this industry and not knowing how long a job will last or when the next one will come? You know, does it ever kind of reach a point where you feel like, oh, I've made it, I'm safe? Or is it always just like that? Yeah, like, I, I mean, after Kirby ended, I wasn't immediately going to the Best Buy to get another <laughs> application. But 
But that was in part because I knew that after that ended, I mean, sure, like there was a chance that it was going to go in another season. There was a chance that we would immediately get picked up onto something else. But there was a chance that that wasn't going to happen. So after the Death Valley drought, right, (laughs) (laughs) to go from, from that to not working for a year and a couple of months made me realize that this is a job that you need to be very frugal with your money. Like, you know, more money than you've seen before potentially will be coming in and it's easy to take vacations or to drive a car that you can't really afford or to, you know, whatever. I think I think you have to be good about putting that money away so that when the show is over, when the checks stop coming in, you're not desperate for the first thing that comes along. Because like, that's the dream is to be able to say, you know what, this show isn't perfect for me or I'd rather be able to spend a little bit more time with my family. The timing is a little bit off or whatever. Like, I'm going to pass on that. Like, you know, most people going in would pass on nothing and rightfully so. But, you know, you want to be able to not be desperate because that desperation can also serve as an impediment to you actually getting hired on something because people can sense desperation off of you. But also, like, it can be an impediment to creativity. Like, if you're trying to come up with a cool pitch for, like, an interesting TV show or write a new sample, if you need it to be great, then you're putting too much pressure on that thing. And that's the enemy of of being creative and having something feel, like, natural and free-flowing and fun and whatever. And all of those things... Uh, are going to sabotage something. So if you're good with your money, if you're smart about that, and you're good at building relationships and know that like anyone on any show that you work on potentially could be your next boss or could be someone that recommend you to uh, another showrunner, build those good relationships. I mean, you can, you can daisy chain jobs. It's just, you know, you never know how long the gaps are going to be. So be good with your money in the interim. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best advice. And don't expect your agent to get you every job because, you know, it's, it's been said that agents get 10% of the money So they should be doing 10% of the work. Like you need to be doing the other 90% of like hitting the pavement and and drumming up your own work and building your own relationships. Mm -hmm. So what is the next step for you? Are you interested in continuing in one hours or going back to kids TV or doing a Serpico reboot? What what is is going on for you? I would love to do a Serpico reboot. Um, I would love to write more one hours. I don't see that as my place where I will eventually like land, but I had a very good time writing. It would be great to to freelance more and, and to work like on a sort of short-term basis in there because it is fun to just sort of like clear out the way you've been thinking about writing, reassess some of the things that you thought you knew, like be involved in another writer's room. That was a great experience for that. But, you know, ultimately, like, you know, my heart is in comedy and I've learned that I really do love working in kids TV. I mean, it certainly wasn't the thing that I thought I was going to be working in when I came out to LA. But now that I'm there, I mean, there's so many benefits of, of working in kids TV. Um, you know, you're a little bit more job security, like the residuals, because they'll rerun their shows more. Orders are still bigger than what they're doing. I mean, what, you know, eight episode order for like a comedy on NBC or something like that, <laughs> or 10 or 13 is not uncommon anymore. And on kids TV, you know, if you're lucky, you can do, you know, a minimum of like 13 and then probably 20 or 21 or 26. So there are really a lot of tangible benefits to working in kids TV, besides the fact that, like I said, there's a lot of cool things happening there. So Gabe and I are definitely both working still in in kids TV. We've got a new project with Disney Channel that we're, you know, excited about and we're, we're working on and will be running if it goes well. Working in the hour-long space was a lot of fun, but, you know, I don't plan to transition out of uh, comedy. And the experience that we've had working with Disney Channel has been almost universally positive. So you don't hear that about many jobs, and I'm not going to look that gift horse in the mouth. So before we go, we have a couple more questions for you. Uh, Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Uh, I have so little time for TV. I've got two children and, uh, you know, we've been working on this Disney project a lot, but I try to, uh, I watch Legion, um, Mm -hmm. which is the most 
visually interesting, creatively done show imaginable. And for that, just the sheer like audacity of that show, it's one of my favorite ones to go to immediately. Um, in the comedy space, I used to be, you know, like I, I would have said things like, you know, Silicon Valley and like Atlanta. And those are definitely shows that I still watch. But it's funny how as I've gotten older, my tastes have kind of like mellowed to, you know, 22 minute broadcast comedies. So like you're fresh off the boat, blackish kind of shows that are smart and well done, but they're, you know, they definitely feel more network than something like Atlanta. But so I've been watching those slowly, you know, waiting for moments that I can binge and, and catch up on the weekends. Do you have any last advice for aspiring writers or you know, show creators, whether in the kids space or otherwise? I think one of the pieces of advice that I was talking a little bit about before if you want to stand out in a, a pile of scripts, you know, on a showrunner's desk or in their inbox or however they're getting them, it is, I think, imperative to not shoot for middle of the road. I think what you're shooting for is something that shows what your interests are, that shows like who you are as a writer and be as fearless with that as you can be because I, I read a number of of scripts for staffing that I just like they're fine they are fine but fine isn't going to cut it if I've got 200 other scripts some of which are more exciting you know so not playing it super safe I think is a good idea not worrying about producibility not not even necessarily for a staffing sample you might not even need to worry about episode two. Just stand out and show who you are and what you like and what you can do. I guess my second piece of advice is that for attracting an agent or manager, for showing a showrunner that you'd be great on their staff, I would really, really advise people to focus on those first 10, 15 pages of their script because even if I loved something, I might not be able to finish it because I've got so much other stuff to read. And so, you know, there were certainly scripts that I read front to back because I was really invested in them. But there were plenty that after a couple pages, I was like, okay, this writer doesn't have the control of the seasoned pro that I want them to be. Or, or this writer's jokes feel a little too familiar. Now, it's certainly possible that that writer has an amazing end of act two scene and like, you know, big set piece in act three that's going to like really wow me. But I might never get to that <laughs> if they don't spend that time making sure those first scenes are not just setting up characters and doing them like, you know, really expositive dialogue. Like it, they, they've got to feel like we're living in a show that's confident, that knows what it is, and that's like plowing forward. That's great advice. And lastly, do you have any resources for our listeners, be it books, podcasts, apps, websites, whatever it is? There's a website called TV Calling that <laughs> I'm aware of. Uh, it's run by an idiot, but it's oh, good thanks. information. Um, no, uh, uh, TV Calling is a great resource, and I've definitely recommended it to other writers, but I assume that people listening to this podcast would know about that. Um, I really loved, when I was first getting into the business, uh, Chad Gervich's book, Small Screen, Big Picture. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that's something that you guys have talked about before, but just learning about how the business works on a macro level and what the difference between a studio and a network is and that kind of thing just made me feel more confident as a new writer. So that was really helpful. And then um, the TV Writer's Workbook was also a book, uh, Ellen Sandler. And that was an another book that was really helpful to me, you know, in, in actually like cracking story and writing my first few teleplays. So yeah, those are both great books. So before we go, just a reminder to our listeners that our paper tease competition is still open for submissions. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser uh, to potentially get feedback on air from us and win prizes from our sponsors. And that brings us to the end of our episode. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in and thanks to Mike for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And our listeners can get the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 96. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews are going to help us attract new listeners and build our community. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. 
I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Mike? Yeah, I actually have two Twitters because I do kids television. I'm at M Elber for my more adult takes on the world <laughs> and at Melber 2000 for, you know, more sort of kid friendly uh, show thoughts. Nice. You're trying to convince people you're born in 2000. You're one of the kids. That's right. I mean, I just, it's, it's the future. 2000, right? That's pretty cool. Wow. These people can vote now. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paper team.co and what are we doing next week next week we're going to be doing another paper scraps special of sorts where we uh, spend some time looking at current events in the industry discussing them as well as answering questions from you our listeners reading some reviews all that good stuff tv writing will be solved in under one hour (laughs) (laughs) all right and we'll see you guys then see ya